Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to another edition of the Food Focus podcast. I'm Trent Kling. He's Leighton Kling. Today, we're going to talk about a number of deals specifically from the restaurant industry, including Buffalo Wild Wings attempting to refranchise many of their locations and InVenture Foods reporting their latest earnings results. We're going to have some fun at the end of the show, too. We're going to talk a little Major League Baseball ballpark food with some new product innovations on that front. But we begin with the biggest food news of the week as JAB Holding Company enters into a deal to whisk Panera to the private sector as restaurants continue a pattern of swapping hands over the last six months. This move comes as Panera was celebrating a little bit of a resurgence in their particular sector. Their stock was already up about 20 from $203 on January 1st to around $253 March 31st, the day before speculation began that this deal might actually be in the works. Analysts had speculated about who could buy Panera. McDonald's was rumored. Starbucks was rumored. Even restaurant brands recently announced a $1.8 billion deal to buy Popeyes, as well as Domino's. There was speculation about all of these, but here comes JAB Holdings, a little bit out of left field, and they take Panera Private for $7.5 billion. This is an interesting podcast, Trent, because we are going to be talking about refranchising efforts of a lot of QSR players and then also mergers and acquisitions in a market that overall has already seen record high stock prices. Restaurants have been struggling in the same store sales metric and overall sales have been stagnated due to grocery deflation and stagnation. But here you see a company in JAB Holdings that looks to buy Panera. Panera that has been seeing a lot of success recently in the United States. A lot of analysts have been saying that not only has the company performing well lately, but it's notably due to several reasons. They were even mentioning how Chipotle has been faltering and that has really led a lot of people who eat cleanly or focused on the ingredients or transparency of the ingredients within these QSRs to be flocking over to Panera. But overall, Trent, it seems as though Panera 2.0 is really paying off, and that has brought in potential suitors for this deal. Originally, reports were everywhere around the as to the price of this acquisition. However, now it appears that they are going to be paying around $7.5 billion for the brand. This means a share price of around $315 a share. You had mentioned that the shares would have been really in the $200 dollar range for the past year or so, a 30% premium over their 30-day volume-weighted average ending March 31st, and a 15% premium over where they were on April 4th, a day before the deal terms were announced. Overall, Trent, the merger, of course, is pending approval from Panera shareholders. However, if you see the statements that have been recently made by their CEO, it appears as though Panera Bread is all but closed with this deal. The CEO said it's going to actually be bittersweet for him since he founded the company back in 1981. He has seen the company come from a very small operator to a very large operator with over 
2,000 locations in Trent. They generate more than $5 billion now in annual system-wide sales through all of their three banners. But it is interesting. The purchase price indicates that JEB feels that this business is not yet to maturity, and they feel that potential synergies from their other brands and other recent acquisitions in and around the industry can help introduce a positive impact to the bottom line. And the thing that really struck me as interesting to tie this all together, we talk about their previous leadership and Ron Shake, Panera's CEO and founder, he said that the company in JAB is really looking towards the progress in terms of centuries, not decades. And so this really plays into the fact that he wants to see this franchise grow beyond his own life and, and really create something even far larger than he can imagine. And if you look at JAB Holdings, Trent, you see that Keurig Green Mountain, Krispy Kreme Donuts, Pete's Coffee and Tea are all brands that have been acquired at least in the past three to five years. And so you see a company that really is looking long term and potentially can combine some of these brands. Obviously, Panera is well known for its coffee and clean food holdings, but clean food is actually something they've been marketing a lot lately. And this marketing effort has really helped boost these same store sales from the company. I think that's a great note that not only is JB attempting to buy Panera, but this is a long-term hold. It's not something where they're going to buy Panera, hold them for five to six years, and then sell them to another private equity firm. Their whole MO is to acquire brands that they feel like the runway for growth lasts decades upon decades. In a statement, Olivier Goudet, who is JAB's CEO, said that JAB overall supports Panera's vision for the future. And I tried to read between the lines on some of these quotes because in these press releases, obviously, we're not given too many quotes to work with. But you look at Panera's vision for the future. The first thing that you really focus on is the clean food campaign that you've already mentioned. The company has recently launched it along with the traditional advertising campaign encompassing both print and television media. But also you have to feel like he means the streamlining of that in-store experience that was once disjointed not but a few years ago. Panera 2.0, now almost complete in terms of the rollout and company-owned stores, has helped in terms of their throughput within the stores. And also you have to like, for the future at least, their 24% digital sales mix at company-owned stores. But another thing mentioned in the press release was that JAB likes the mix between franchise stores to company-owned stores. The company actually has more company-owned stores than franchise stores. It's around 1,130 company-owned stores to about 900 franchise stores. And of course, the minute numbers go up and down within those brackets. But generally speaking, you're looking at 60% to 40% company-owned stores to franchise stores or right around there. And it's a possibility maybe that JEB likes this mix because they see potential cash from the ability to sell off company-owned locations as other fast casual and QSR concepts have done recently and as Buffalo Wild Wings is potentially looking to do. And we'll talk about that towards the conclusion of the podcast. Now, this deal, of course, is pending the approval of Panera shareholders and is expected to close sometime during Panera's quarter three of fiscal year 2017. Now, since the shareholders have seen massive growth, nearly 60% in the stock share price during the course of the last year, and really most of that in the last six months, and much of which coming 
near or after the merger announcement, one could imagine that the shareholders would approve the deal, go ahead and cash out, and not risk losing out on that. Because I think if shareholders actually decline the deal, you're going to see the share price crash down to right back to around the 240 250 mark per share, where now it's over $300 per share. And again, the premium they're looking at, it's $315 per share, which is a 30% premium. It's a little bit higher than what we've seen across most industries, but particularly the restaurant industry, which again suggests that JAB sees some growth opportunities with Panera. Layton talked a little bit about Panera and their overall holdings. Reminder that they do have three platforms, Panera Bread, St. Louis Bread Company, and Paris. Paradise Bakery, but you look at the same store sales metric for them and they are far outpacing other fast casual restaurants, particularly as Leighton mentioned Chipotle, but also other concepts including Qdoba that exist in that same fast casual space. They released a preview of their first quarter fiscal year 17 earnings in this release talking about the deal with JAB. Comparable store sales, they mentioned at company-owned locations, increased 5.3% over the previous year's first quarter. And they're not going against easy comps either as quarter one of fiscal year 2016 saw same restaurant sales increases of 6.2% for the company-owned locations. But one thing I do want to note, the company-owned locations are outpacing the franchisee-owned locations, which, again, we've talked about, especially in the QSR industry, but also a little bit in the fast casual industry, how franchisees have of late been outpacing company-owned locations in terms of sales growth. That's not the case here. Company comps for Panera up 4.2% for fiscal year 2016 overall, but franchisees during that same time period saw just just a 0.7% increase. Layton mentioned some of the other brands JAB holds. You look at Caribou Coffee, Einstein Brothers Bagels, Stumptown Coffee as some of the other brands. Already we've seen significant synergistic practices among their recent acquisitions. I look at Caribou and Einstein Brothers, for example. They've started to lump the two together in combo locations beginning in Colorado, which is, of course, Einstein Brothers' home. And if there was one criticism of the Einstein Brothers chain, it was probably their coffee. So they found some synergies there. They found ways in which these brands can accentuate and boost up one another. And you have to wonder if maybe they can find a way to integrate one of their coffee companies or multiples of their coffee or tea companies within Panera locations. Because right now you think of Panera, you think of bread, you think of clean food. You don't really think of their coffee and tea, which they do sell quite a bit of. And since they are a morning-centric, food operator. They do have a full breakfast line. Perhaps throwing in some branding, at least with coffee, may be able to boost some of those same restaurant sales in terms of average ticket size. Maybe not in terms of traffic, but at least getting people to purchase more while they visit a Panera. So maybe the growth they see is there, but also Panera is looking to open several locations in the next 12 months. Yeah, and they added 12 net new stores in the fourth quarter alone. They want to open 70 to 80 in 2017, and they want to see 15 to 20 relocations overall. But Trent, this is what's interesting in that Panera said this is going to be a, the consistent growth strategy overall. So we're talking year-over-year growth around this range, and so I think that's going to be a long-term benefit. You see a lot of white space, even though they have a lot of locations in the United States and a lot of concentration in the bigger 
markets, you do see a lot of cities that are in the three to 400,000 population range that really don't have a lot of Paneras. I can think of even some markets that are really growing in the 150,000 population range that don't even have a single Panera. So I think right now for JAB, which is a company that does invest in the brands that they own, we talk about the synergies, potentially getting some costs down within these different brands, but overall, they're not afraid to invest. And this is actually a company we talked about recently on the Food Focus and that the Keurig Green Mountain concept is actually partnering with Budweiser for Keurig K-Cups with beer. So I think that this is going to be something that they are not going to shy away from. We talk about the clean food initiatives from Panera and I think JAB is behind them 100% and I think that means a lot of food innovation going forward. I think food innovation is going to be a very important aspect for Panera. On one final note, Trent, we talked about this before recording the podcast, but it's going to be sad for us in that we won't be able to delve into the Panera Financials. This has been a company that has been topsy-turvy over the last two years, but again, has regained a lot of strength over the last three to six months, and we were really excited to see its resurgence relative to the QSR industry and how the overall restaurant industry has been facing same-store sales pressures. But you see the clean eating initiatives within the company, and we have been seeing a lot of marketing initiatives from the company that we've been reporting on as well. We talked about removed dyes, preservatives, and so forth. However, this doesn't change the overarching fact that Panera still has a lot of things on its menu that are seen more as high-calorie content. So I am curious to see how JAB Holdings is going to address some of these concerns. We see Panera as a cleaner restaurant overall in the industry, but they do have a lot of higher fat content foods and things of that nature. And then also we talk about gluten-free diets. And really, this has been a trend in the U.S. over the past few years. A lot of people are eating or at least trying to eat gluten-free foods, having gluten-free diets and things of that nature, despite the lack of celiac disease presence in the United States. But overall, you do see that celiac disease does at least threaten about 3 million people in the U.S. But Panera, for their part, really, they have failed to address this. And if you go on their website, they're really showing nothing that is gluten-free so far. And I think a lot of this is due to cross-contamination from the company. Obviously, the company has a lot of breads and other things that have gluten within them. But this is going to be interesting to see if JAB at least addresses this going forward. But again, it's going to be a little less transparent in the long run because JAB is a German-owned private company. Moving on to our sole earnings report for this food focus, Inventure Foods, a marketer and manufacturer of snacks and specialty foods in the United States, reported fourth quarter results in fiscal full 2016 results last Thursday. A little bit about the company background before we get started here. The company is a unique company in that it leverages several partnerships from strong brands already existing in the United States, and so they are able to license from these established brands to drop interest in their own specialty snack offerings. Some of these brands you may be aware of, they own or partner with Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs, Boulder Canyon Foods, Raider Farms, TGI Fridays, Jamba and Seattle's Best Coffee, just to name a few. Boulder Canyon Foods and Raider Farms, they actually own 100% of, so these aren't actual partnerships. The Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs is one. 
that a lot of people may recognize. To take one of these, for example, however, we can use the TGI Friday partnership. TGI Friday is actually a trademark actually owned by TGI Friday's The Restaurant. With them, they actually partnered up to sell specialty potato skin chips, onion rings, and mozzarella stick snacks. You can actually see these in big box stores, stores like Target and Walmart as well. With manufacturing facilities in Arizona, Indiana, Washington, Oregon, and Georgia, it can be seen that they have deep brand awareness and they have a very large distribution network in Venture Foods does inside the United States. The company has actually been publicly traded since 1996, so they are no spring chicken, and they are headquartered in Phoenix, Arizona. Before we break into the earnings results, Trent, we should make it understood that this company has been facing a lot of increased competition like no other recently because the competition for shelf space in these big box stores or the stores like Walmart Neighborhood Market has been increasing over the last few years as a lot of snacks have been trying to differentiate themselves either by being all natural or just by really offering something as far as a flavor offering that is new to the market. So this is a company that is under pressure and we'll see that within their financial results. And you mentioned the fact that we're seeing an increased push towards giving shelf space, even in larger retailers like Walmart or Kroger, towards natural foods. And I want to focus on two brands that they hold, that they hold within their company, as you mentioned earlier, in Boulder Canyon and Raider Farms. That's where these two brands exist. They exist more towards the natural foods end of the spectrum. Boulder Canyon has a number of unique products, including potato chips fried in avocado oil, for example. Those foods are ones that can fit into the natural food segment. They can fit into some of the organic food segments. And that's why you saw strong showings from Boulder Canyon and Raider Farms brands. They saw increases of 7% and 31% respectively over the prior year's quarter. And the company said this was due to broader distribution, or as they called it, velocity gains along these two brands. But part of that is because these two brands have a little bit more shelf space to work with. And when you look at some of the other partnerships that you have, of course, Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs, that's an iconic brand. But again, you're very limited as far as shelf space, as far as what you can work with there. Because now, if you go to the meat section of a grocery store, the prepackaged meat section, you're starting to see a lot more natural or organic sausage products and different products there above and beyond just your traditional hot dog that now you have to share space with and they're being crowded out. But I think nowhere is this more apparent than with their TGI Fridays line because not only do we see softness in TGI Fridays restaurant sector alone, but you're also seeing a movement away from giving freezer products like the TGI Fridays branded products any type of room because you've got to make room for more of those natural products. And we talked about gluten-free in the last segment. Many of the gluten-free products have to be frozen. And so with a limited number of freezer doors in a retailer or in a grocer, you've got to make room somewhere. And it seems like TGI Friday's brand foods are some of those that are being crowded out. But the company does see growth potential in their Boulder Canyon and Raider Farms groups. Raider Farms, for those that perhaps aren't aware, 
They produce frozen fruit and vegetable mixes. Many times they will produce frozen vegetable mixes for smoothies in particular. So they are perfect for this natural food segment towards the increased awareness of eating clean. As we talked about in the last segment, why Panera's same-store sales have increased. But despite the strong brand showings from both Boulder Canyon and Raider Farms who market the healthier foods in the overall food mix for InVenture, Snacks net revenues during the fourth quarter of 2016 did decrease 2.5% to $27.5 million, and that's compared to $28.2 million in the prior year period. And one of the first things the company talked about in their conference call, they said marketing more they feel like is necessary to make their brand stronger. But Leighton, I'm anxious to see who they market more going forward. Will they pour their marketing money into Boulder Canyon and Raider Farms? Because those are the brands with momentum and those are the brands it seems like consumers increasingly want. Or will they try to prop up brands that are struggling a little bit, including the TGI Friday's frozen products? I think because they have more leverage and more say, they are going to be focused on the brands that they have more in-house, like the Boulder Canyon portfolio. They also mentioned attending the Natural Products Expo West in Anaheim, California, where they introduced a number of innovative products under that same portfolio. They talked about using rice bran oil and then also using more grain and vegetable ba- vegetable-based snacks overall outside of even their Boulder Canyon portfolio. And I think that is exactly where this food company is going to be going in the future. They want to actually diversify away from their potato-based portfolio. And that means switching up a lot of their offerings and probably shying away from the current offerings they have within that TGI Fridays brand. But right now they mentioned vegetable-based snacks with pea, lentil, and ancient grains varieties. And I think this is going to be something the company is focused on going forward and something that really allows them to market something that is differentiated. We talk about increased marketing efforts and how the company plans to increase spending overall within the 2017 year. And I think that is going to be something that is going to be the focal point of a lot of advertisements is the focus on vegetables and other new offerings under their larger umbrella. But overall, you do see that they are stating that they have seen progress in the struggling brands. They did have a food safety issue in 2015 that really has been damping sales. We see the fourth quarter results for this latest quarter. Consolidated net revenues decreased 7.7% to $63.4 million. This compared to 68 or so million dollars for the fourth quarter for the prior year. Analysts were expecting a bit more. A lot of shareholders were expecting a bit more as well. They had an adjusted net loss as well of $3.9 million for the quarter. And I think this ties in well to the idea that any sort of recall with a smaller company like this, we see a smaller company in terms of market cap at least, really it affects them long term. And I think they are trying to rebound from that, trying to get people focused on their newer initiatives. They had the voluntary recall in 2015. And really, you've seen stagnation ever since then. For fiscal 2016, you've seen those adjusted frozen product segment gross product was $15.1 million compared to $19.9 million. So when you talk about expenses related to food safety issues, it really affects you long term. And I, I think that this 
is really something the company is going to be focused on as they talk about returning value to shareholders. However, they really didn't outline any specific plans as far as share buybacks or things of that nature. They certainly won't be able to afford some exorbitant dividend considering they did report a net loss. But overall, the company has announced previous strategic plans and a financial review in order to really position themselves in a way that will make them profitable going forward, Trent. And I think one of the major ways is that food innovation for those company brands that are in-house. Now for our third story is Buffalo Wild Wings is under more activist pressure to refranchise their locations. Looks as though potentially they're giving in at least partially. They are calling this a portfolio optimization initiative, which is a little bit of a euphemism for basically selling off or trying to sell off 10% of their company-owned stores to franchisees. Buffalo Wild Wings retained the Cypress Group to assist with the sale of, again, around 10% of their portfolio of company-owned restaurants, and they announced this over the course of the last week. In the past, the Cypress Group, to give you a background on them, they've worked with TGI Fridays and Wendy's in some refranchising efforts. We've talked in the past about Wendy's successful refranchising of the vast majority of their company-owned stores. Wendy's is a QSR operator that's seen gains by leaps and bounds over the last few years. Buffalo Wild Wings may be trying to catch some of that success in a bottle. In their press release announcing this, Buffalo Wild Wings mentions looking for franchisees with the financial ability to build their brand. And I know late no one goes out and looks for franchisees with basically no liquid assets. So obviously Obviously, everyone wants franchisees with money, but based on this press release and once again trying to read between the lines, it looks as though they're going to prefer multi-unit operators if possible going forward, although they are not clear in saying that. Dean Zuccarello, the CEO of the Cypress Group, said that their industry-leading track record, they meaning Buffalo Wild Wings, and continuing innovation gives us great confidence in successfully executing this process, end quote. And I know this is just simply a quote in the press release, but one of the things he mentioned was continued innovation, and of late, Buffalo Wild Wings has actually been criticized by some analysts for their lack of limited-time offers, focusing instead on short-term or day-of-the-week promotional pricing. They've increased the number of sauces, but in terms of the actual menu items, you've seen a shrink in the number of items that they're offering at their restaurants and they're trying to put more emphasis on the Buffalo Wild Wings to go program rather than people eating in. And we've talked before about how that's eaten into top line revenues. They, as I mentioned, do have 21 sauces compared to 12 a decade ago. But really, the problem with Buffalo Wild Wings, I don't think, stems from the fact that so many of their stores are company owned. In fact, company owned stores are more successful than franchisee owned stores. Leighton will talk about that in a second. But when we look at Buffalo Wild Wings as a whole, part of the reason they've seen these comparable store decreases, I think, is because of the increase in their to-go business. Buffalo Wild Wings' business plan as a whole and their success as a restaurant and getting these large ticket values is predicated on people eating inside the restaurant 
ordering alcohol, ordering the high margin items, continuing to linger for several hours while watching sports, while talking with friends, that type of thing. And you're able to upsell those consumers to a higher ticket value. That's one of the reasons Buffalo Wild Wings ticket value per customer has been among the highest in their industry segment. But now that's starting to slip as more and more people are getting items to go, which means, of course, they can't linger. They can't buy beer. They can't buy alcoholic drinks. They can't buy those higher margin items. And Buffalo Wild Wings has a markup on beer in particular greater than just about anyone in their industry segment. So that's hurting them. And for whatever reason, Mercado Capital Management, among other activist investors, feel like the answer is selling to franchisees. And I think that's a short-term answer to build cash flow. But I don't see a long-term benefit from it. Yeah, and you had mentioned sort of the dichotomy between the company-owned same-store sales and the franchisee same-store sales. And if we dig a little deeper, we see that in their last fiscal quarter, which is their fourth quarter, fiscal 2016, company-owned same restaurant sales decreased 4%. This compares to 3.9% for franchisees. Almost the same in the most recent full year 2016 same-store sales results, we see that there was a decrease of 2.4% at company-owned restaurants and 2.7% at at franchisee-owned restaurants. So you see sort of a higher deceleration in growth at the franchisee-owned restaurants. And this is interesting in that I think you were dead on when you talk about unleashing the short-term value within the refranchising strategy. I think unlocking that short-term value is the primary initiative here. Portfolio optimization initiative doesn't really categorize this strategy, Trent. I think overall, this really doesn't lend itself to long-term sustainability if you are Buffalo Wild Wings. I think that's really obvious if you look at the trailing one-year stock price, the lack of strategic direction for the company. You mentioned rolling out of the to-go operations and then other initiatives within the menus and other food offerings as well. But you see the stock prices really fluctuate between around $200 a share to bottoming out around $125 a share. I think shareholders are growing impatient here, and I don't necessarily think refranchising is the correct strategy. There's a lot that goes into this despite the fact that we don't have a clear indicator of how many operations or how many individual stores are going to be refranchised. We see that the previous report that Mercado released of Cypress's findings in last October said that it's going to take between 18 and 24 months to complete a larger refranchising effort. And I think this is going to be something that is a main thing going forward for a restaurant like this, because you do want to be careful. You want to have someone that has a very large track record with franchising the company, with partnering with the larger corporate headquarters. And which really understands the larger strategy for Buffalo Wild Wings. But I think because that strategy is unclear, it's going to be harder to find these larger franchise operators that are going to want to take several locations from their portfolio. Overall, you see that Cypress does have 25 years, actually more than 25 years of experience in mergers and acquisitions and refranchising. So this is going to be good in that they do have a partner here to help try to acquire franchisees that 
that are across the country that have this larger restaurant experience. I think this is really going to be some trying times for Buffalo Wild Wings going forward because they really have not addressed these larger strategic plans to address the falling same-store sales. And I think that's going to be something that Mercado Capital Management wants to see long-term. But just simply refranchising does not guarantee financial success. In fact, you might see just the opposite when you get some franchisees into the larger operations or into some bigger markets holding a lot of individual locations that are kind of confused as to the larger strategy and maybe unfamiliar with the brand overall. You see that more people obviously have been wanting to stay inside and eat, watch those bigger sporting events. They don't like to be out in public, especially as you see food prices within the grocery store sector fall or stay stagnant. So a lot to learn here and a lot to keep an eye on with Buffalo Wild Wings going forward. And it may be a tough sell to franchisees, too. We're kind of forgetting about that and that this particular company and the Cypress Group may have their work cut out for them. As we recall from the last several earnings releases from Buffalo Wild Wings, as well as their Investor Day presentations, they've noted, although there's been food deflation in other areas, there's been food inflation in a really impactful area for them, and that is the area of the chicken wing, the company's signature product. So while prices have gone down in other areas of the food industry, chicken wing prices have gone up, which has pinched their bottom lines and over time has forced Buffalo Wild Wings to not only change their pricing structure on wings, but also change their overall prices that they charge people on wings. So you no longer order by the piece, but rather by preordained sizes that they have on their menu. So they've changed their entire algorithm as far as how they price things on their menu because of the food inflation that you've seen in wings. But while all that is going on, you also have this kind of semi-battle regarding the board of directors as Marcato Capital Management has been highly critical of Buffalo Wild Wings. And in fact, what they did earlier this year, is they attempted to nominate four individuals to the board of directors for their upcoming 2017 annual meeting. And this actually prompted Buffalo Wild Wings to issue a statement regarding their board. They said that they regard the constant overturn of their board as something that's important to them. They want to keep their board fresh. And they kind of mentioned that they're not sure about these four Marcado folks to the board of directors. They're not sure if that's what's going to actually deliver value to the shareholders. They actually noted a share repurchasing program that they started earlier this year after a number of conversations with Marcado Capital Management as evidence that they weren't neglecting shareholders at all. But in March, Buffalo Wild Wings then came out just shortly before this press release about wanting to refranchise locations and their partnership with the Cypress Group that Two others were nominated to the board of directors, and it's very transparent the fact that Buffalo Wild Wings would prefer these particular two to take over on the board of directors as two are retiring. James Damien and Michael P. Johnson are retiring from the board at the annual meeting. And they issued, Buffalo Wild Wings did, a press release that Janice Fields and Sam Rovit will stand for election. But those two join about six others. So now you have eight for at least two spots, perhaps more if existing board members get voted out. But this is all a very convoluted situation. And this has been spurred on by the fact that their same store sales have been lagging, that their bottom line numbers have been falling slowly. But I do think looking at the resumes of Miss Fields and Mr. Rovit, 
they have some powerful backgrounds and indeed perhaps better suited backgrounds for the company. Janice Fields in particular has spent a lot of time at McDonald's overseeing a number of operations in McDonald's and she has a lot of ticks on her resume including being named to Fortune's 50 most powerful women in business list and so on and so forth. So I'll be anxious to see how these votes turn out because again Mercado has a vast number of shares here at Buffalo Wild Wings so perhaps some under the water excitement going on there for Buffalo Wild Wings regarding their board and their upcoming 2017 annual meeting. Definitely a lot of changes for the operator and a lot of change at a time when the company is going through a lot of problems with the operations side of things and getting those customers into those stores on a consistent basis. A lot of times we do talk about activist investors having potentially too much leverage, but I think this is one case here where you can see that the lack of strategic direction could definitely be benefited by having some new members on the board and some new management in the ranks overall. We end this edition with the Food Focus with a specialty story, one that I know Trent is going to love talking about. This with the MLB and their food offerings. The MLB opening day happened on Monday, April 3rd, and we will be taking a look at some new food offerings at the ballparks throughout the country. Each year, teams essentially compete for PR by introducing new or exotic food items in hopes to capture some nationwide attention. Obviously, the PR push helps to get the marketing efforts out there and get people in these ballparks. A lot of times we talk about the exorbitant prices within the food and drink specials at ballparks. However, this is one way to really entice people to get into these ballparks and really gives you the sense that the season has begun. We're going to be dividing these new food offerings into two different categories, supersized food and the experimental slash new food offerings. The supersized food category usually features products intended to be consumed by about four people or potentially more and really took off with the introduction of the boomstick in Texas several years ago in order to honor Nelson Cruz. The experimental and new food really got off and caught hold with the opening of new ballparks from around 1998 to 2018 Tea Park in San Francisco, most notably, and Safeco Field in the Seattle, Washington area got a lot of press with their new and innovative fair. Overall, before we begin, we must say that concession stands in ballparks, especially the older ones, are limited in space. A lot of limited space when you're talking about the infrastructure there with the ballpark itself. It's, so it's very crucial that the new offerings are not onerous on the back end. We talk a lot about the operations in the back end with the cooks and things of that nature. They honestly don't have a lot of room to operate, so anything new they may get cannot be too detrimental for that prep area. Trent, let's begin with the new products. All right. So some of these new products, and as Leighton mentioned, we're kind of looking at these with an eye, not just towards how new or different they are, but also how much they impact the overall operations as a whole. Let's go south to Atlanta, where the Braves have a blackened catfish po'boy street taco. This would fit in the experimental category. And they also have a tomahawk chop sandwich they have just released. They're moving to a new ballpark this year. The tomahawk chop sandwich includes multiple breaded fried pork chops, as collard green coleslaw on top of it, and barbecue sauce. 
Now, the website claims that this serves about four people, and it's only $26. So really, when you compare it to other food items at maybe fast casual restaurants or even your casual restaurants, the price points aren't that much higher. And that's something I noticed, by the way, on a lot of these new products is that we're not seeing price points expand exponentially at ballparks. Ballparks get kind of this bad rap for having expensive food, but now we've seen because of inflation in the restaurant industry due in large part to wage inflation, we're seeing an evening out here despite the fact that ballparks do have a captive audience as they haven't experienced the same wage inflation with their game day staff as some restaurants have. Let's go north to Baltimore where they've introduced a line of what they call twisters. This fits into the experimental category. They're essentially flattened rolls of pretzel dough or perhaps perhaps breadstick dough, and they're crafted into a funnel shape. And you can use these funnels to hold a number of different things. Delaware North is actually the concession stand provider for Baltimore, and they're actually the concession provider for a number of the teams we'll talk about here today. But they're putting a number of different things into these twisters, including meatballs and marinara sauce in one. Others, they have macaroni and cheese in your choice of meat. Crab meat, which is a longtime staple there at Camden Yards, makes sense. Baltimore, buffalo chicken or pulled pork. They also introduced a burnt ends hot dog, too, which I found interesting considering you usually think of the Midwest as kind of your burnt ends home. So the fact that Baltimore is getting in on this is somewhat intriguing, but these are easy to eat items. And I think that's perhaps the most important part of these twisters is that they would be easy to eat in a ballpark setting where you're cramped. You don't have a lot of room to spread out. And I mentioned the macaroni and cheese. Let's keep our eye on that because there are a lot of macaroni and cheese related offerings this year. In Miami at Marlins Park there, they have a new fried chicken and pimento grilled cheese on multi-grain bread. It looked in the pictures that the team released kind of deconstructed. So not sure exactly how that would look put together. In Chicago, the White Sox are rolling out a line of Chinese food, actually, served in Chinese to-go containers. Nothing really unique about the food in particular, though. It fits pretty well with your traditional American-Chinese cuisine. Their main new offering, though, would fit into the supersized category. It's a 16-inch long grilled cheese. It's got a macaroni and cheese base under on top of Texas toast. So there's your macaroni and cheese again. Brisket, which you'll see in a lot of food items this year as well. Barbecue sauce with a Syrah wine base, and it's topped with a tower of onion rings. No word from the White Sox, however, on the price point, but it looks to serve about three to four people. We talked about macaroni and cheese. The Brewers have unveiled a chorizo and pico de gallo mac and cheese that honestly looks like one of the more innovative food offerings so far this year. Miller Park in Milwaukee is not necessarily known for some of their culinary exploits or experimental exploits. They have a lot of meat, a lot of sausage there in Milwaukee, as one would expect. Down south in Arizona, the Diamondbacks have a chicken funnel cake sandwich with a strawberry Granny Smith apple jam on the chicken. And again, this is something that even though it sounds unique, it doesn't really pressure the back end of things too much because you've already got funnel cakes there. You've already got fried chicken patties there or fried chicken strips there. So it's not that big of a deal to just carry an additional condiment in the strawberry Granny Smith apple jam to coat the chicken and suddenly you have a new product. This combination style product is very endemic of what you'll see a lot of times with these early season new food releases. 
In the supersize category, the Diamondbacks have introed a chicken enchilada dog, which is 18 inches long. It serves two to three people with chicken enchilada sausage, so not technically a hot dog, topped with queso blanco, pico de gallo, olive sour cream, and tortilla strips. Just north of Arizona in Colorado, the Rockies have introduced a new dessert item. These are apple pie nachos. They use cinnamon sugar fried sopapilla chips with apple pie filling on top, whipped cream and caramel. These are expected to have a price point of around $9 to $10. In Kansas City, neighboring Colorado somewhat, by about you know, 9 to 10 hours, They'll be selling a Sunrise Dog, and I think their execution on this is a little bit interesting because they're using it exclusively during Sunday day games this year. It's a large hot dog with bacon, cheddar cheese, a fried egg, and white sausage gravy. People absolutely love biscuits and gravy in Kansas City. I know from prior experience there. I do like their execution, though, rolling it out only on Sundays. By limiting it to one day a week, they keep some luster on the promotion, so this might be something that they can keep up for multiple years, but also they can focus their sales towards one day without clogging up back-end execution seven days a week. And Leighton, you know, out on the West Coast, San Diego's got some innovations. Texas has some innovations as well, and the Texas Rangers are kind of the leaders or pioneers in this category. Yeah, perhaps the most innovative one is in San Diego with the Padres having the fried chicken club with pineapple slaw, pickled Fresno chilies, avocado, and bacon, which is quite the combination there, which is going to be very difficult if you're talking about operationally on the back end there. Those are a lot of different items that are going to be compiled in one offering, and they also have PB&J wings tossed in jam and coated with peanuts. So again, very innovative products, uh, products that are actually going to draw up a lot of attention on that West Coast area, but bacon-wrapped hot dogs as well with carnitas and pico de gallo topping and a sriracha aioli dressing. So so really thinking outside the box there. And then, as you mentioned, finally, back to Texas, where the Rangers have kind of pioneered this entire big food kick. Texas snowballs, which are apparently brisket rolled into dough balls, dipped in batter, fried, then topped with powdered sugar and barbecue sauce. So overall, operationally, again, going to be a tough task for the Rangers back end to pull off. They also have a crunchy barbecue burger, which has pulled pork, onions, and Doritos. Doritos of all things are going to be on this crunchy barbecue burger and that is the crunchy side of that offering. A Fritos kimchi chili dog with kimchi based chili, cilantro, teriyaki sauce and Fritos. This is a very bizarre matchup with kimchi being a Korean type offering and with teriyaki being a Japanese type offering. A 24 inch long Texas Philly a brisket in the place of steak here. And this is going to be interesting because typically you see something like this be a little bit smaller in size. This obviously fitting in to their big food kick. Finally, a variant of the boomstick called the most valuable tamale. Not actually a tamale, however, it just looks like one, but a 24-inch long hot dog with chili, cheese, and sour cream. And the price point, Trent, is going to be a whopping $27, which is actually quite good if you can have four to five people munch on that while you're watching the game. Yeah, a lot of these products, though, I, I would say are, are messier, and so it would be more difficult to consume. One thing that listeners might know, we talked about Safeco Field in Seattle and AT&T Park in San Francisco being two of the pioneers as far as experimental food is concerned. 
we haven't talked about them yet because they haven't gotten a lot of focus in part because Delaware North isn't their food service provider. In fact, Seattle is served by Center Plate and Ethan Stowell Restaurants. In case you're wondering, in Seattle, they've got some new offerings here, including Seattle Wings, which actually encompasses fried oysters coated with Frank's Red Hot Sauce, and authentic Oaxacan Chapulines, which are toasted grasshoppers with chili lime salt seasoning. So Seattle is not sitting on their hands. Frozen custard cookie sandwiches also being rolled out as well. But perhaps the bigger news in Seattle is always going to be the craft beers. They rotate in and out craft beer offerings on a yearly basis. They do the same thing in Colorado, too. And I'm anxious to see what new craft beer offerings they have at Coors Field. I'm, I'm slated to actually see Seattle and Colorado take on one another right around Memorial Day. So I'll report back there maybe in our what we ate section and it's time for that what we ate section where each Leighton and I talk about something we tried that's new to the world of food over the last week and Leighton we begin with you so this actually ties into a lot of what we talked about during this food focus podcast I tried a snack which is actually from the wow baking company it's chocolate chip cookies which is a very basic item however they're going to be differentiated in a number of ways one of the ways we talked about in terms of gluten-free this is a wheat and gluten-free cookie these are a little bit doughier and this offering is an all-natural one so even though it's high in fat and high in saturated fat trent this is something that i look to as a predominantly clean food according to the ingredients at least we talk about also a size differentiation here in that these cookies are relatively small, only about an inch in diameter or so. We look at the ingredients, and again, gluten-free. This is very interesting in how they use these ingredients to leverage taste and the overall mixture. Gluten-free flour is the number one item here on the ingredient list. They use brown rice, sweet rice, and tapioca. They use all-natural chocolate chips. We talk about cocoa butter, soy, vanilla, and then cane sugar as well. So I think this is going to be something I'm going to be loving over the next year or so. We look at a typical package, and the price point is around the $4 range. Per container, there's four servings, and there's a serving size of about two cookies per package. We look at the calorie content for those two cookies. The calorie content is around 260. Total fat, I mentioned the higher fat content, even though this is an all-natural offering. Total fat was around 12 grams and 7 grams of saturated fat overall and 22 grams of sugar. But this is definitely going to be something I will buy in the future, buy more of at least. I bought four packages the first time around at my local Big Lots of all places. So I am curious to keep eating and trying different products from the Wild Bake. Company. I went all in on a particular concept last month. I went to SpaceNutrientStation.com. I've always been interested in products like Soylent, for example, on this particular market. But Space Nutrient Station sells a product called 100% Food. And I bought some of this in powdered form to mix up for breakfast and or lunch. And basically the concept here is if you have three cups of this powder a day, usually mixed in liquid, it provides you exactly 2,000 calories 
calories. At least that's the version that I got is the 2000 calorie version. And again, I don't use it for all meals of the day, but I've started using it predominantly for lunch. The ingredients include golden flax seeds, hemp seeds, rice flour, dextrose, sesame seeds, and a vitamin and mineral mix according to a 2000 calorie diet. It comes in this big nondescript metal package, but I've got to tell you, as compared to other products in this category, even though it is kind of seedy, there, there are sesame seeds and hemp hearts kind of floating around in there, and it makes it a little bit more difficult to mix up and drink. The taste is actually pretty good. I, I would liken the taste to maybe pancake batter, for example. And like I said, it does get a little bit seedy. I would recommend mixing it with half the amount of water. What I do is I've been using about eight ounces of water for around one cup of the mix. And so it kind of makes a, a slurry, which I then drink. I prefer it cold, I have found out. And, you know, some of my students where I teach, they've kind of made fun of me for it. But overall, I think it's enjoyable and it's done exactly what it's supposed to do, which is keep me full. I don't get hungry again until dinner time, and I'm able to consume ostensibly less calories than I would if I were just eating a normal lunch somewhere else. As far as the price is concerned, for each one cup serving, the price varies depending on how much and how you order it, anywhere from about $2.50 to $3.50, although I did get the product on special, so it amounts to about $2 per serving for me. That'll do it for the Food Focus podcast. For more, visit us on Twitter at The Food Focus. Also, check out Retail Focus that'll be dropping later this week. Plenty of retail news to bandy about during the course of the last seven days. And so we'll have plenty on that particular show. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you haven't already, please do give us a rating as well. For Leighton, I'm Trent saying so long until one week from now. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries.